as we approach Christmas and the new year, we also approach the first year anniversary of Hans on January 1st, because I had nothing better to do on New Year's Day than to record this podcast, apparently. So, hooray for us! To celebrate us lasting a year, and not just my dad listening, but actual real people too, I have decided to do what most podcasts do during this time, and do an AMAA, or Ask Me Almost Anything, or a Q&A episode if you like. So to do that, I need questions that you would like answered. They can be about pretty much anything you want. Stuff about the podcast, how I make it, the research, what I wear while recording, I don't know. But you can also ask me anything about me, who I am, my biases, and just generally get to know me better if you want. There are a few restrictions though, as you might expect. I won't answer anything that I deem too personal, or that might tell you more about where I live and work specifically. All I will say on those fronts is that I live in Wellington, and I work in conservation, so don't bother asking anything deeper than that. Don't worry too much about that though. I'll filter questions that I deem out of scope, so fire away with anything you want to know through to me via Twitter, Facebook, email, and all the usual places. Kia ora, g'day, and welcome to the History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast, episode 26, My Burb of the Year. I know I said we would be talking about Maui this time, but he'll have to wait for next time, because I decided to do something a little bit different. This week is New Zealand's Bird of the Year Award, where we vote for the bird to be crowned as the best one for the next year. So to coincide with that, I'm going to tell you all about the bird I will be voting for as number one, as this also coincides with the launch of the patron-only episodes. If you are a patron of $5 or more, you will get access to a series of episodes that I will make all about Aotearoa's native and endemic species, whether they be birds, fish, bugs, lizards, not lizards, whatever else I can find. These will be released kinda as and when I can do them, so they will be a bit infrequent, but I am going to aim for a schedule, though I'm not going to tell you what that schedule is, just in case I don't meet it. I'll also be doing a random patron-only episode on Kiwi slang, if anyone is interested in that too, because why not? These animal episodes come as popular requests after the Tuatara episode. As it turns out, a lot of you found that pretty interesting, which is great. Just like that episode, these will be mostly unscripted with support from my research notes, so there'll be ums and ahs as well as maybe the odd swear, and definitely talking about mating between animals, as it is pretty key to their survival and continued growth. So with that in mind, let's talk about my number one choice for bird of the year. Drumroll please. The hee hee or stitch bird. So yes, this year um, I am supporting the hee hee uh, because I've seen a lot of support um, for this little bird um, all over Twitter at the moment. Um, there is the notorious penguin party or penguin block, um, but as someone who has looked after penguins for a couple of years, um, I couldn't justify uh, talking to you know uh, voting for them. So. Um, yeah, so we're not going to vote for penguins this year. Uh, maybe next year. Maybe maybe next year. But this year, um, I'm getting into uh, Team Hee Hee because there's a lot of support for the Hee Hee. So we're going to talk about uh, the Hee Hee or the Stitch Bird as it's known in Te Reo Pākehā or English. 
So a good way to start this, I think, uh, to give it a bit of structure, because uh, there is going to be a bit of structure in these episodes, we're just going to um, have a bit of a loose structure so I don't ramble too much, although there obviously is going to be a bit of that. Um, so the, what we're going to start with is, uh, in each episode, we'll start with the classification system, what they're classified as in terms of how uh, vulnerable they are to extinction and decline and that kind of stuff, because there is a classif classification here in New system here in New Zealand um, called the NZTCS, which stands for the New Zealand Threat Classification System. And you can go and Google this, and it is basically a system uh, that uh, ranks how vulnerable um, an animal is in New Zealand to uh, you know, decline and that sort of thing. So it goes from basically totally fine to uh, basically, I think it's called nationally critical. Uh, yes, nationally critical. Um, and then after that, you get extinct. So it's a way of telling how, uh, you know, how vulnerable something is. So the hee hee is deemed as nationally vulnerable, meaning they are obviously threatened um, and they are two steps away from being extinct. So the ones below that are nationally endangered, or and the one below that is nationally critical, as we just mentioned before. So it's it, it's quite bad. Um, you know, they're they're you know nationally vulnerable is is you know, it's not it's not awful. Uh, you know, but there are about four or five steps above that that they could and probably should. You know, obviously we think that they should be. So um, they're not they're not in a good place, um, as we'll talk about um, more uh, during the episode. So these episodes, I should probably also state as well, they aren't going to be as hardcore researched as the other episodes, other normal history episodes are. Reason being, uh, I have to dedicate my time somewhere. Um, so these episodes are going to be uh, taken from primarily from information that I find on New Zealand Birds Online and from Doc. Um, those are both very reliable sources, and I am confident that the information that I get from them is 90% correct, um, which I think 90% is you know high enough um, in, in regards to... Uh, how good that information is going to be and it, it, it meets my threshold of not too much effort um you know when i'm trying to put effort into the mainline series so uh so yeah so there may be mistakes i i, I you know fully admit that um but just yeah I, I i am uh i do think that the information that i give will be you know mostly correct um, so yeah, so a lot of this stuff um, comes from New Zealand Birds Online and from Doc. Um, so we're going to start with the, the New Zealand Birds Online physical description um, of the hee hee because for a lot of you out there who don't know what they are or what they look like or you're not from New Zealand or if you're like me, you're from the, the South Island, which is where they're not found, um, you, you probably have no idea what a hee hee is. So we're going to um, just you know give a physical description but of course you can google them and i'll put some uh pictures on the website under this episode as well if you want to see uh the hee hee so they're a medium-sized songbird um what that basically means is it's about 18 centimeters in length um and about 30 to 36 grams depending on if it's a male or a female males tend to be about roughly 36 grams females tend to be about 30 grams so the males are, are bigger uh, by a reasonable amount they have a slender, down-curved, blackish bill, bold, white wing bars, and a habit of cocking their tail, which is a bit interesting. So they kind of got a curved bill, um, and uh, yeah, kind of these like white wing bars that are quite distinctive. Um, so both the males and the females exhibit that, um, or that they, they have that, uh, they they have those wing bars. So it's quite a reasonably obvious trait that they have that you can use to identify the bird. Um, 
So the males also have a black head with white ear tufts, uh, a yellow neck and shoulder band, white wing bands as we mentioned before, and a greyish brown body. So the males are the ones that you probably think of when you think he he. You think that you know the yellow sort of shoulders and the white, uh, the black head with the white kind of um, yeah ear tuft things. Um, so the males are the ones that you know when you think he he. If you know what they look like, that you are thinking of a male. It's very rare that you probably think of a female first, unless you're like a scientist or something. The females, however, are greyish brown, apart from the white wing bars, again, as we mentioned before, and the juveniles re resemble adult females. So the males are the ones that are much more colourful, much more, let's be honest, interesting to look at um, in terms of, you know, colour and, and that kind of thing. Um, and that's very, very common in a lot of birds. You know, a lot of you will be aware of, you know, the, the classic is peacocks and peafowls. The peacock, the male, is definitely more interesting looking than the female. Although female peacocks do look very interesting, actually. But the male is obviously, you know, he's got the blue and the big tail and all that. Peafowls don't have that as much. So so that's a very common trend across uh, across. Um, avians basically you know males tend to be a bit more bit more bright colored and and that sort of thing the interesting thing about the uh females though is that the female he he looks similar to female karamako or bellbirds uh but the thing if you're trying to tell them apart um is the karamako tends to be a bit greener rather than the kind of gray brown of the he he but you know unless you have them side by side that's going to be a bit difficult to try and figure out so as we mentioned before again the easier way to figure it out is the female karamako doesn't have the white wing patches of the female hihi so you know it's a it's a much easier way to distinguish them if, they, if they've got that, those white kind of stripes almost on their on their wings it's a hihi if it doesn't probably a karamako bellbird the uh, the karamako are also a bit slimmer um, and they move a bit slower as well um, so if you're able to watch them, you know, again, side by side, it can be a bit harder to distinguish if you kind of don't know what you're looking for. Um, but yeah, for, for Hee Hee, it's those white wing bands. That's what you're looking out for. The cool thing about these guys as well is the Māori name um, Hee Hee comes from the same word that means ray of sun. Um, and were said to be carriers of sun rays spreading light through the canopy. Because basically you could see the hee hee, you know, um, darting through the forest, you know, with these bright kind of yellow um, shoulders and they, you know, darting through the forest and that kind of thing. So you can kind of see where that kind of um, corridor or story kind of comes from. Um, so that's really, really cool. And it, it, you definitely... Um, can see that i went to go see these guys in zelandia um which we'll kind of mention a little bit later on and it, it really is kind of like that uh, you know you see these flashes of yellow through the canopy and you know you go oh what's that and you know that sort of thing so you can definitely see um you know kind of how that came about and that kind of stuff and it really is a kind of a fantastic um kind of thing that really kind of grabs your interest and that kind of stuff so it's, it is um yeah definitely really cool uh, really cool looking bird um that's you know quite small again sort of 18 centimeters in length you know it's only about 30 grams ish you know it's a very small very lightweight bird um again very common um in birds um of that kind of size very very uh very very uh light in terms of weight as well so what do they sound like we know what they kind of look like uh, but what do they actually sound like when you're in the bush so they emit quite a quite a variety of different sounds. So the males will emit whistle calls with two to three sort of notes, and females will sometimes make that too. Um, but both sexes will emit um, a whole bunch of different calls, such as 
pitch warning calls, uh, single note high pitched whistles, um, a quiet sort of warble, um, and a short identification or aggressive warbles, um, as well as a single note alarm call, which can sometimes sound similar to a koromako, um, depending on you know how good your ears are and that kind of stuff. Um, some people are really good at hearing that kind of thing. Dock dock workers, absolutely. I've talked to a couple of different dock rangers. They can they can spit absolutely pick out which ones uh, is which just from you know listening in the middle of the bush it's quite a quite a great skill to have actually the females will also emit a loud kind of fast alarm call when chased by males during breeding season as well um so we're going to talk a lot about um kind of their breeding and that kind of thing as well but it's all well and good for me to talk about you know kind of explain to you what they sound like uh, but of course we can actually have you hear what they actually sound like um, from recordings Um, so I'll play some recordings from New Zealand Birds Online um, of males so all the sound all the uh, bird calls you're about to hear are from male hee so they're the ones with the yellow um, doing a variety of different behaviors but just to kind of give you an idea of uh, kind of what they sound like um, you know instead of me just explaining it to you and you having to use your imagination so all of these are males um, so here we go So they sound pretty neat. They're quite uh, interesting kind of sounding little birds um, with their little kind of, you know, tweets and warbles and all the other weird things that they do. So yeah, very, very cool um, sounding bird as well as a, a very interesting bird to look at as well. So let's move on to what they eat. So they typically eat nectar, fruits and insects. So pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, you know, they go up to flowers, they drink the nectar, um, they eat the little little fruits and things that they can find and they eat insects um you know typically uh you know those native new zealand insects of course um but if you know if they're held in captivity they'll be fed um you know less native things because you know we don't really like feeding them native stuff because they're all going extinct or, or you know they're all endangered as well so uh, so they'll be, you know they feed on um the sort of things you'd expect um but the interesting kind of thing around this um is that the fact that they eat nectar um which is the same thing that tui and koromako uh also eat uh led people to think that they were he he were related um to the tui and the koromako um that they were part of the kind of same uh group 
um, you know, in terms of uh, phylogeny and classification and, and, and that kind of stuff. So they thought they were uh, reasonably closely related. Um, but more recent studies, I, I believe the, the, the study was done in 2006, um, which was a genetic study on the hee hee actually didn't find that. What they found is that the hee are representative of their own family. Um, so by that, I mean, you know, you've got, uh, you know, family, order, genus. That's not the correct order, but, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> Hopefully you know what I mean. Um, you know, they're part of their own family, so there's nothing else in that family except the hee And the closest relation to that family was the wattle birds. So that's things like kōkako and tiki, uh, which are the North Island saddlebacks, um, and the huia, which is now extinct. Um, so for those of you who know what those birds are, they're more related to those um, those wattle birds, um, so named because they got these weird kind of uh, like wattle. They're called wattles, but they're these things kind of near the beak. Um, you'll know what I mean if you see a picture of them. Um, so yeah, they're actually more related to them than they are to the the tui and the kotamako which is um what they thought and this is something that's happening not just with birds it's happening all across um the the animal kingdom and even further beyond than that into you know fungi and and bacteria and that kind of stuff as well um is that we think that some things were related to other things based on similar characteristics and a lot of the time we are correct um you know we do it based on their behaviors their, their structure their physiology you know all that usual stuff and now because we've got this genetic technology where we can research you know how these guys are actually uh you know how the dna relates to each other and all that fancy stuff we can actually we've actually found that yeah a lot of the things that we thought were related to each other actually aren't related to each other and they're related to something else or they're totally on their own and completely different entirely so a lot of the stuff you know with the introduction of genetic research has really turned kind of the classification of animals and other things and plants and stuff as well kind of upside down um which is kind of amazing it really is showing that you know the the more you know the the less the, the more you know the the more you realize you we don't know things at all it's not really how that goes but you get what i mean so it is it is it's a really interesting time in terms of genetics and that kind of stuff which is um yeah really really interesting so where does uh where does the he he live um so originally they were actually found all across the north island so you didn't find them in the south island which is why i'd never seen them before because i used to live in the south island for the entirety of my life so originally they were found uh, all through the North Island, including Great Barrier and Little Barrier Islands, um, which is just basically outside the Hauraki Gulf um, near Auckland. Um, so they were found all the way up there on those islands, as well as Kapiti Island, which is just off the west coast of the lower North Island. Um, so it's kind of further down um, where I live in Wellington. Uh, so they were first sighted in 1835 in the Bay of Islands, uh, which again is way back up north. Um, but they had disappeared from the mainland north of Waikato uh, by the 1870s. So by the 1870s, um, if you were, went further than the Waikato, uh, there, there were no hihi, which is a good majority of the North Island. Um, so that is pretty bad, as you, as you might imagine. So it's really only the lowest North Island that actually had any hihi at this time. Uh, the last mainland sighting of a hihi at all uh, was in 1883 in the Tararua Ranges. Uh, so that is now a national park as well. Um, so that is, yeah, by 1883, you couldn't find these guys on the mainland at all. By the mainland, of, I, I mean, of course, uh, North Island, South Island. Don't know if Stuart Island is included in that, actually. Might not be. Anyway, uh, so yeah, by, by 1883, uh, there were no 
mainland populations of um, Hihi left. Um, they were only found on Little Barrier Island, which is called in uh, Te Reo Māori, it is called Te Hauturu o Toi. Um, so yeah, so that that's quite just you know just a little interesting tidbit there. Um, so yeah, so they're only found on Little Barrier Island or Hauturu, as that is sometimes shortened to um, that that Māori name. Um, so the reason you know why why what happened to these guys why why did they suddenly basically just go extinct on the mainland which is a very common uh story for a lot of our native new zealand animals um, and endemic new zealand animals i should say um so it's actually just down to the usual suspects um that if you are familiar with this area of new zealand in terms of conservation um you know or, or none of these will be terribly surprising to you so it was the introduction of introduced mammalian predators like cats, rats, and stoats, um, as well as habitat loss. Um, and the other thing that kind of I never thought of was specimen collection. Um, was, you, you know, the Europeans coming over thinking, wow, that's a really cool looking bird, and grabbing a, a whole bunch of birds and taking them back to, um, you know, the British Museum or, you know, German museums, French museums, you know, that kind of stuff. They think they look cool, so they want to take them back to their... Uh, you know back to their museums to show them off and research them and do all that other stuff that people do um so that declined their population quite a lot uh as well um but the other thing um that maybe is less obvious um is the fact that they seem to be especially prone to diseases from introduced birds so things like rock pigeons and whatever dirty birds come from europe and that sort of thing they've made their way over um so they seem to be especially prone to that as well um so that is also um one of the reasons why uh they you know quite rapidly declined really um from the new zealand mainland and went eventually went as we said it went extinct from the new zealand mainland to kind of follow on from that hehe are generally quite sensitive to the health of the forest so their disappearance is a good indicator of a declining environment so what that actually means is that there are some animals out there that we call indicator species, uh, basically meaning that for whatever reason, their biology, the way they behave, or their physiology, anything like that, means that they are usually the first to go, or, or one of the things, uh, yeah, when, when the environment starts degrading for some way, whether that be habitat loss, pollution, uh, introduced mammalian predators in this case um you know that kind of stuff if you start messing with the environment these guys are going to be the first ones to go and that should be your indication that stuff is not right that something has gone haywire and that's why this species has you know disappeared generally across the world a lot of the time that is frogs um you know that frogs tend to be quite sensitive to their environment for a number of different reasons um, but in terms of other species there are a lot of other species as well outside of frogs and amphibians um that do uh, also are quite sensitive to their environment in this case as we mentioned is the hihi but frogs and amphibians tend to be the ones that are the indicator species and just to put it out there frogs are disappearing all across the planet uh we are losing a lot of frogs um you know almost universally across the planet uh, because you know with the pollution the degradation of the environment and um, all of that usual stuff so frogs are disappearing it is a pretty massive problem um so that's kind of our global indicator if you will that the, the environment is not is not right animals are not handling it and we need to be doing something about it um but anyway let's let's talk less about that let's talk more about he he 
So, uh, Hōturu, so Little Barrier Island up in the Hōreke Gulf near Auckland, uh, was made a bird sanctuary in 1894, and not long after that, it was made a nature reserve. Uh, not quite sure what the difference there is. I guess bird sanctuary and nature reserve have a slightly different legal definition, but whatever, that doesn't matter. Um, so this kind of classification of um, Hōturu being a nature reserve um, is probably what saved the hihi from extinction. Because uh, as, as we mentioned before, the only... Uh, place that they were found was on Little Barrier Island on Hōturu so that is a a huge thing uh, had that not happened we probably wouldn't have hehe around today so that was a pretty massive thing um, so good on whoever did that um, top points to you <laughs> so the thing that we here in New Zealand what we like to do is once we have a species that is you know roughly stable in an area uh the way that a good way to try and bring that species back is to translocate it somewhere else take some individuals put them somewhere else and try to establish another population and he uh, are no exception in terms of we have tried lots of times to translocate them throughout the years and many of them were unsuccessful um again not something that is uncommon um, again, because of a variety of different factors, um, all the usual suspects we mentioned before. So the places that they sort of tried were islands, uh, smaller islands that were near um, Hōturu, um, and that was tried throughout the 80s and the 90s. A lot of the um, area, a lot of the islands up there. Um, uh, an attempt was made in 1994 to Mokoya Island, um, which is basically based in Lake Rotorua. Um, so that's like the island in, in that lake. Um, and there was an attempt in 2007-2008 to the Waitakari Ranges. So none of those were successful, unfortunately. However, they have now been uh, translocated with much more success to a bunch of other places, um, including Kapiti Island, so back where they were found again, uh, Tiritiri Matangi Island, um, which is again in the Hōreke Gulf, and Monatotari, which is near Hamilton. Um, I believe that's a sanctuary. I'm not quite sure on that one. Um, and Bushy Park Sanctuary, uh, which is near Wanganui. Um, but the one that I went to go see them was Karori Sanctuary uh, here in Wellington, which is now called Zelandia. Um, so that's where I went to go see Hehe myself. Nearly didn't didn't see them um, because I thought I saw one near the big dam that they've got there, but I couldn't quite confirm it. Um, and I was a bit sad because I really wanted to see one. And then on my way back, um, you know, when I was going back to the kind of main entrance, um, one just kind of darted in front of me, um, which was really, really cool. Um, so I've made a video of actually my time out at uh, Zealandia, which will hopefully be coming out soonish whenever I bother to edit all the footage together. Um, but yeah, so I don't know how good that footage is, but hopefully you can see some cool birds. I saw a lot of tui um, and uh, a lot of tiki, a lot of other stuff. So hopefully um, when you get to see that, um, you'll see, uh, see some of the cool birds uh, that, that I saw as well. Um, so yeah, so Zealandia, if you're in Wellington, is a really good place to see, um, see lots of different birds, but hee as well. So what kind of habitat do they actually live in? And um, we know that they live in all these different places, but what kind of habitat actually is that? Are they are they living in scrubland? Are they living underwater? No, is the answer to that second one. Um, but what they do like is mature native forest. So when you think of New Zealand native forest, you know you, you think big tall trees and 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 kauri and 
all sorts of other things, you know, ferns and, and, and a canopy and all that sort of stuff, that's exactly the kind of forest that they like to live in. That's the kind of native bush that they like to live in. They, however, can be sustained with supplementary feeding in a seral habitat. I think I pronounced that correctly. It's spelled S-E-R-A-L. So a seral habitat, which is basically a fancy way of saying a, a more kind of shrubby, scrubby, grassy kind of habitat that doesn't have very many big trees. So they can be sustained there uh, if you put in supplementary feeding, which is basically putting in um, sugar water and, and that kind of stuff in to let them you know, have a constant source of food so they're not having to go out and find it all the time. Um, so supplementary feeding at this uh, kind of stage is currently required at all sites um, w- w- that he here at basically due to their inability to sustain a stable population. So currently, even though we've successfully translocated these animals to um, other sites, they actually can't sustain a population by themselves. We can't just put them out in the wild or into these eco sanctuaries or whatever and just go, sweet, that's it, job done not a problem we actually have to use the supplementary feeding we actually have to try and you know keep you know do some extra stuff to keep that population going because they actually can't do it themselves um mostly down to um there not being enough food um throughout the you know kind of the forest canopy and stuff um as well as deadly fungal infections from aspergillus fumigatus again i think i pronounced that correctly um so yeah, for Aspergillus is a, is a common fungi, is a common fungi genus. Um, so yeah, so they actually can't sustain themselves very well unless we provide them with sugar water and and that kind of stuff to, to kind of give them a bit of a you know an extra push, um, but extra uh, energy and, and food and that kind of stuff. So um, so yeah, so that, that's um, quite an interesting sort of thing that I didn't really uh, didn't really know. So how many is there actually in the population? How many individuals are there? Um, according to uh, New Zealand Birds Online, um, they said the population probably doesn't exceed 2,000 individuals. Um, although in saying that, um, Little Barrier Island was thought to have 6,000 individuals after cats were eradicated from the island in 1980. So it, it's, it's not an exact science. Uh, it's not something that is very easy to measure. Um, population uh, kind of measurements are kind of notoriously difficult to do um particularly depending on the particular species that you're wanting to um find out you know kind of depends on their behavior and what they like to where they like to hang around and you know that kind of stuff um so 2000 individuals is that is that a lot is that enough not really um as we said before it is nationally vulnerable um which is not great um so 2000 individuals is not a lot um you know, as we mentioned in the uh, Tuatara episode, Brothers Island Tuatara have about 400 individuals, um, and that basically means that overnight, nearly overnight, they could go extinct. Um, you know, 2,000 is obviously better than that. Not a whole lot better, but it is better. Um, so 2,000 is, yeah, not great, but yeah, it, it's at least not awful, if you kind of get my meaning so yeah again not an exact science again it depends on the species depends on how much individuals you want but generally of course the more individuals you have the more genetic diversity you have the better this the uh the better the species is going to survive um so yeah 2000 not great but damn son it's it's pretty all right so uh let's talk a bit about uh, the breeding and when they tend to breed so they tend to breed in spring and summer so that's uh, at least if you're listening to record uh, listening to this as i 
uh, not long after I record this. Um, it is spring and summer now um, here in New Zealand, which is kind of the latter half of the year. So you're talking about, um, you know, it's November now. Um, so we're about to enter summer. Um, so the last couple of months have been spring. We're about to enter summer for the next three months. So that's kind of the end of the year, start of the next year is kind of when they're, um, when they're breeding um, and, and that kind of stuff. So what they actually do is they build a woven cup um, that's kind of lined with tree ferns and feathers. And those tree ferns and feathers are sitting on top of a stick base, um, which is inside a natural tree cavity um, or a nest box if it's been provided, which are basically just wooden boxes that you put out in the bush and they you know, go in and they make nests in them. So they put sticks and then they put tree ferns and feathers on top of that into a kind of cup thing, um, which is pretty cool. And they can have up to four clutches of one to five uh, eggs laid per season. So they have an average of three um, eggs per season. Um, but yeah, they can have up to five. Um, you know, and they'll lay four clutches of those. So they'll have, what, three times four is what, 12? So they'll have, you know, on average 12 eggs per um, per breeding season. And saying that, though, the clutch size does decrease as the bird gets older, as you might expect. Um, and females will incubate for 15 days Um with males only helping to rear the chicks um so males you know they they do the dirty and then they just bugger off for a bit you know see your love uh, as the as the female just sits on the eggs and waits for them to hatch and then when the eggs hatch you know the the, the male comes back and goes hey I'm, I'm back again let's let's raise these kids so i mean you know at least he comes back for when the kids are you know uh, actually born um but not so much when the female is uh, pregnant um well not pregnant but you know when she's incubating the eggs so you know i mean i mean points for that but <laughs> i mean I, you know maybe yeah but look they're animals they don't they don't abide by anthropomorphic uh morals so yeah so the male bug is off for a bit and then he comes back um after the female has uh, incubated the eggs by herself and then uh, helps to raise the chicks um after that so let's talk a bit about um, their behavior. And we're going to obviously focus, uh, well, not obviously, I guess, but we are going to have a bit of a focus on kind of the mating system and the breeding and that kind of stuff to kind of follow on from uh, what we were just talking about before. Um, so yes, there is going to be a lot of talk about sex here. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, people, but you know we have to talk about sex. Sex is a weird thing that people do. And birds do it too. Some scientists have to watch birds have sex. I'm sorry, but it is a thing um you know that we have to talk about if we're going to talk about uh birds uh, particularly because we're trying to increase the population and the only way that we can increase the population is by having birds mate with each other so we're going to talk a lot about the mating system because as it turns out it's extremely interesting um th this is uh, by the way this is none of the stuff is stuff that i knew prior to researching this i had no idea about this stuff so this is some really exciting interesting stuff um, that I've just just found, um, which is really awesome. So he he actually have a complex social structure and mating system. Um, they're actually a bit weird, especially in terms of like birds. You know, we've already talked about how they're actually kind of on their own in terms of phylogeny and that kind of stuff. And you know, this is kind of part of it, right? That they actually have a weird kind of you know uh, social structure and mating system. So the females and the males um, will actually visit nests that are that aren't their own. Um, and chicks from various nests will actually get together after fledging, so that basically after they kind of, you know, get out of the nest and start wandering around a bit. So after they fledge, they'll actually get together, so various nests will actually get together and perform behaviours that scientists have interpreted as playing with each other, as, as being friendly, you know, that kind of thing. 
which is really interesting because the other kind of interesting thing about that is adult males will also form groups with juveniles during the winter where hierarchies possibly occur as well again another very common thing in the animal kingdom males getting together and develop some sort of hierarchy females will do that too as well such as in chickens um but yeah that you know again of something very common in that regard but it it shows that they have a very kind of again very complex social structure but it also very communal social structure uh you, you know they're, they're not you know the 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 birds aren't kind of being out on their own doing their own thing all the time they at, at least to me is from what i can read from this and you know i mean i'm no expert i'm not a scientist i don't have a phd but this to me seems to indicate that they have some sort of communal aspect that groups of he he in an area will interact with each other on the regular potentially that they you know that, that, that they have some sort of community in an area um and will you know and they interact with each other all the time their kids will play together you know the neighbor's kids will go around to the you know the other neighbor and they'll play in their pool or some shit you know that kind of stuff so that to me is really really interesting that's something that's really kind of weird and different and kind of cool but in reality we actually don't know a lot about this kind of stuff um it's just not been researched very much um and at least as far as i can tell it's only within the within the last kind of 10 years or so that we've actually kind of figured out that actually there's a lot going on here that we didn't know before and that it perhaps warrants further research so really exciting stuff in terms of hee hee behavior in this regard so hee hee um in terms of their breeding are what they call and i'm absolutely going to butcher this uh polygonandrius polygonandrus whatever kind of kind of like that but basically what that means is it's a fancy way of saying both males and females have multiple partners during breeding season and the reason i bring that up is because that's actually really unusual for birds there are actually only six other passerines which is the order that he he belonged to so order is the uh step above family so they're in their own family but they are in the same order of passerines right if that kind of makes sense um if you think of like uh you know the tree of life kind of thing you know you've got you know a phylum probably something the order and then you know uh family after that they're in the same order as passerines but then they're in their same they're in their own family if that kind of makes sense so there are only six other passerines that actually have recorded as exhibiting this mating method so they're actually really unusual in that regard so that's kind of something weird again new zealand animals are weird so there's this weird thing that he he do so that's pretty cool the kind of addition to this is because males are going to be competing to breed with females they need to produce a lot of sperm the more sperm you produce the more chance of you successfully um you know uh impregnating a female right basically if you have more you know more stuff there is a higher chance that you are going to outcompete the sperm of the other males which is what you want as a bird as a bird or as an animal in general you want your offspring to survive in this case you want to actually make offspring over the other males so to do that in this case their way of solving this is to make more sperm and to make a lot of sperm in fact and of course if you want to make lots of sperm there are a couple of ways you can you can do this right you can 
Uh, if you think of it like a factory, you can increase your efficiency in making sperm. So you can basically be more efficient at it, you know, being able to do it faster or use less resources, you know, that kind of stuff. But the, the more kind of crude way, right, is to basically just make the factory bigger. Um, which is exactly what that sounds like, if you know what that means. So by by that by making the factory bigger, what I mean is that he he have huge balls. Uh, they have very large testicles. Uh, not actually physically large, but lar- they're, they're four times larger than what you'd expect of a bird their size. So, you know, pretty massive. Um, you know. They- you know, they, they, the, the way that they kind of assess that is they basically look at all the other birds that size and look at the size of their uh, testicles. Which I should say, testicles is not the uh, correct scientific term. It should be testes, um, but whatever. Um, so they look basically look at um, a whole bunch of birds and realize that, you know, their testicles are X size. And they realize that he he were four times that size. So that's pretty big. <laughs> that is huge. So yeah, so they basically, to produce more sperm, they have bigger balls. Uh, which is amazing. So that's a pretty cool thing. And additionally, kind of part of that, the body where the birds actually store sperm, which is called the cloacal protuberance. Again, hope I pronounced that correctly. But basically, that's the sac, right, that they store their sperm in. Uh, is actually three times larger than you'd expect um, during breeding season. So that's a lot of sperm that they're storing um, to try and impregnate females. So males just really going hard when it comes to trying to uh you know trying to mate with females and make sure that their offspring are the ones that are um you know in the eggs essentially to kind of add to this kind of unusual mating habits that they already have uh he he are actually the only bird to mate face to face in what i guess can only be described as the missionary position (laughs) so this is something that actually no other bird has been observed doing um, and that is interesting because you would think that the uh, machinery, uh, shall we say, um, of being able to mate, you would think that it would be angled in such a way that missionary or this face-to-face uh, uh, mating would actually be possible, right? Because the way that most birds uh do mate and the way that he he will also mate as well is with the male on the female's back and that means that their i don't want to say genitalia because because uh birds don't quite have that um it's a bit different um and we could talk about that in a future episode but not today but basically the gist of it is is that the machinery down there is designed for male on the back of female mating and that is the same in Hehe. They still have that same machinery in that same position. So that encounter, or that gives them a unique problem if they want to mate with, you know, if they want to mate face to face. They can't do it because the machinery isn't in the correct position. So what will actually happen is in the males, this machinery, which is actually the cloacal perturbance, butchered that again. Um, you know, the place where they store the sperm, it will actually change angle when they want to, you know, when they want to mate uh, face-to-face, which is kind of nuts, you know? That is, that is weird. You know, what, like, the machinery is already there to, to do it a different way. Why would they do it this way? It's just, it's just strange. And part of the reason that they may try to do it this way is this next sort of part, which is the not-so-fun part of this, is that, 
pretty much all of these face-to-face matings are at least by uh, what scientists seem to think, is that these face-to-face matings are forced, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, So they are done not by the will of the female. Um, And they're actually done by extra-pair males. Um, What extra-pair males basically means is males who have already uh, bred with or mated with another female, and they're basically just going around having a hoon now. Um, and you see this, you do see this game quite a lot in a lot of other species. Birds do this, do 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 this quite a lot. Um, and it is, uh, I don't know if it's more often than not, but I do know that it is, it, it's not uncommon for it to be forced. Um, so that is, yeah, the not kind of so fun part of this. It's kind of give you a stat, um, at Tiri Tiri Matangi, uh, 32% of matings were face to face. So 32% of matings that were observed by scientists, uh, were face-to-face were uh were forced i should say which is um yeah you know the animal kingdom is is uh is a dangerous place it is a nasty place um and obviously you know uh, animals die animals get forced to uh mate with uh males or females or whatever it, you know uh, just like history um where there are grim realities that we have to be um that we have to become accustomed to um that we have to face essentially uh the animal kingdom and zoology and biology and that kind of stuff also has this kind of thing as well is that there are grim realities that we have to face but in the same way that with history we should look at uh history in a lens of um unbiased opinion as possible and try not to uh judge people by modern day morals um which we shouldn't be doing we shouldn't also do this for the animal kingdom for biology and zoology as well we shouldn't be looking at animals and saying that is wrong that that bird yeah that male bird forced that female to mate with him because the, the fact of the matter is they do not have that moral structure that we have they probably don't have the capacity to have that moral structure their brains aren't complicated enough their brains aren't big enough for it so when we do, when we got to go through these episodes and i we, we will talk we will encounter this again a hundred percent we will encounter this again and other things that may potentially not be great that may not sound nice uh, but we have to remember that this is the animal kingdom things get killed and eaten and uh you know forced to mate and all sorts of other things every single day as you listen to this right now, as you record this right now, something is in is suffering out there due to the harshness of nature. And that is something that if you kind of want to work in conservation and, you know, do that kind of stuff, it's not nice. And, you know, I'm not saying you have to get over it, but you have to come to terms with it. And, and, and the same with these kind of episodes we have to come with, to terms with the fact that we are going to encounter things that we don't necessarily uh like that we don't that don't necessarily sound uh you know that don't fit with our moral code uh because the fact of the matter is as i said before animals don't have a moral code or at least if they do it's not the same as ours so yes yeah, so that's my my little pulpit pulpit pit there so let's let's move on we're nearly done and um, you've been listening to this for about 45 minutes so congratulations if you made it this far um so we're going to talk um about the research and recovery so kind of we looked at who they are what the he he are you know where they've been what they're up to so now we're going to look a little bit kind of into the future 
of what's going on so there is obviously current research um into uh you know all about hee some of that includes um you know developing developing a technique to measure the size of the hoturu little barrier island population and to assess its health and viability so that's great as i said before this is not an exact science to try and measure the size of the population and see how healthy it is and that kind of stuff so being able to develop tools to um make this easier or enhance this is is great that's awesome um and in tiritiri matangi um, a study is looking at the carotenoid availability on hihi health um so what what's a carotenoid um basically carotenoid are the molecules that give hihi feathers their yellow color um as well as giving the color um in the egg yolk um so it's it's essentially looking at you know does the does the, if there if there are more carotenoids in the in the environment um you know does that make them healthier or does that not make them healthier you know and that kind of stuff so that's kind of those weird kind of niche things that scientists study and that uh that seem a bit strange and perhaps seem kind of useless um but they can actually be really important if they find something um you know interesting um so yes yeah, so that's another kind of cool kind of research that um somebody is doing so in terms of recovery um the obviously the long-term goal is to basically just increase the population that is the long and short of it essentially if you you know there's not much in terms of like if you want the short version there is not much more to be said there we want to increase the population which is obviously easier said than done um but we want to increase the population with a focus on ensuring the little barrier population is protected um you know because that is essentially our baseline like we know that they can survive in little barrier because that's where they survived uh you know after they were made extinct on the mainland so we want to make sure that population is protected in particular just in case the mainland population goes tits up again uh so we also want to of course monitor and enhance more populations on the managed islands so that's things like carpety and stuff um so making sure that they're all good as well um as well as improving our knowledge of hihi uh through research and maintaining a small captive population uh as well again the captive population just making sure that if everything goes wrong uh, outside that captive population we still have something left so that is all reasonably basic stuff um that is stuff that doc will do on a daily basis um in terms of lots of other species in new zealand as well so that is a lot of that stuff is not uncommon uh but it is again really important there's a reason that we use it you know we use or we do things like this for nearly every species is because it works you know so that's really all of that stuff is uh really really important and to kind of finish off um i was requested by a patron um to not just give my uh number one vote but to give all five of my votes um to you guys i'll tell all of you guys my f- top five votes because uh bird of the year uh, i think previously must have used a first past the post system uh, but now it uses an stv system which is uh something i don't remember what it stands for um but basically it's a system whereby if you're not familiar with it it's a system whereby um you vote for five um in order of you know one two three four five so the one that you want to win the most to the one that you want to win the least i guess so you pick your top five and then depending on if your number one doesn't win then all of your votes for number one get transferred to the next one and then if your number two doesn't win all of those ones get transferred to the next one it's not that complicated but it's like kind of more complicated for me to explain i'm not smart enough to explain it there's lots of youtube videos on it so if you want to go uh learn what stv how it works um 
yeah I'd, I'd recommend going to do that but basically we have to vote for five um so i'm going to give you my top five so of course we've just spent the last 50 minutes ish uh talking about the hee so we know that that's number one my number two is the tarapuka uh, which is the black build gull which the reason i choose this one as my number two uh is because the black build gull it, it's it's an unconventional choice you won't see people advocating for the black build gull the reason i advocate for the black build gull is that most people in new zealand don't know it is a native species um we of course have the red build gull like most other places on the planet but the black build gull which is just basically looks very similar but has a black bill is actually native to new zealand um so you know a lot of people don't know that and i think that's amazing because they're actually they're doing better now i think uh but they used to be doing quite bad but they're doing better now i think so that's you know the reason i picked him is because a lot of people don't know that he's actually native or she's actually native so yeah so i thought that would be a cool number two give give them some points um so yeah so my number three is the tiki or the saddleback um which is an amazing looking bird that i had never seen before until i'd gone to zelandia um it's got um like a red back on it um which is really really cool um or like it's an orangey red kind of back i guess um so really amazing looking animal a really amazing looking bird um again one that uh i'd never seen before uh because i lived in the south island and they're only found in the north island so tiki is my number three uh the number four um has to be the ruru the more pork um so we're definitely going to do an episode well, i mean we're going to do an episode on all of these guys uh, but the more pork is a uh is really a great great bird um so named because you can hear its call sounds like more pork Mopok, which is just so cool so the more pork is, is an owl by the way if uh if i didn't state that before it's a, the more pork the ruru is an owl uh so that's that's a really cool one i really like the the more pork the ruru and my number five the last one uh is the hoiho uh which is the yellow-eyed penguin um so the yellow-eyed penguins are on the five dollar bill on the five dollar note um so you're probably really familiar with them um but they are new zealand's uh rarest uh penguin i think they're the world's rarest penguin actually um there's not very many of them left i believe at last count there was something like 60 breeding pairs it was definitely less than 100 uh so that's not a lot um so we're talking about you know 400 to a tutter, uh you know 2000 hehe and i'm already telling you that that's pretty bad uh yeah hoi ho really absolutely munted um it is unlikely you know it's unlikely that they will survive the next sort of 50 years if the way it's going keeps going um but the reason i put them on the list is because i uh got the privilege of actually uh looking after one or two of them um you know a few years ago uh, which was really exciting i had to hold them down and and feed them and and, and that kind of well not hold them down i had to hold their flippers in because their flippers are really uh they flail around a bit and they can give you a good bash in the chest and wind you which is actually what happened <laughs> so yeah so the so the yellow-eyed penguin is a really amazing animal and of course it is uh, extremely rare um and definitely deserves uh your love but my number one is the hee hee um so that is the one that i'm going to be voting for so of course there are a whole bunch of new zealand native new zealand birds uh that you can vote for um and that you should vote for um because they're all amazing in their own 
uh, different way. So go and look up uh, the Bird of the Year award. Um, if just you just have to Google it, and it should be the first one. Um, and go and have a look at some of the options there. Um, don't let my uh, vote influence you. Um, as much as I'd like people to vote for Hehe, don't vote for what I tell you to vote for. Um, that's just generally a good rule, good rule of thumb in in life, um, not just the Bird of the Year award. Um, but yeah, go and go and have a look and see kind of what animals you think. Um, or what birds you think um, you know speak to you um, as a person, as a being, into your soul. Um, so yeah, so that's pretty much it from me. Um, don't forget to fire away your questions to me for the uh, Q&A kind of episode, um, which will be recorded kind of at the end of December. Um, so uh, you've got basically a whole month to get your questions in. Um, so yeah, so send those in um, to me. I think it'll be really, really cool um, to see what you guys want to know about me. It could be interesting and kind of disturbing, but let's see. Um, so yeah, send those in um, on Twitter. So on Twitter, I'm at History Aotearoa, and on Facebook, I am the History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast. Or you can email me at historyaotearoa at gmail.com. So all the usual places that you hear at the end of every episode. Don't forget as well that if you are a patron, um, you will get access to. Um, uh, or if you're a $5 or above patron, you will get access to all of the episodes um, on Native New Zealand animals in the future. So if you're not a patron and you want access to these in the future, um, I highly advise going on to the Patreon um, and becoming a $5 or above uh, patron. Um, so yeah, so hopefully uh, you have enjoyed this um, learning about Hihi and hopefully you'll have, be enjoying um, learning about all the other Native New Zealand animals uh, that we will talk about in the future as well. You know, other than that, um, I hope you guys have a uh, great couple of weeks. Um, we'll see you next time uh, for Maui. So, as always, hari tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>